Well, good morning. Larry, I just have to say um, just how much I appreciate just your ability to come up here and uh, help us just relax as we come together, right? And just kind of chuckle a little bit, do the announcements, but then to take us um, into the Word and to prepare us for worship. I just appreciate your heart for doing that, so thank you. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we come to you today, we come with a desire to know you, to know what your word has to say to us. And Father, as we look at this particular subject of fasting in the scriptures, it's a, a topic that is not talked about often, at least in our, our circles. We don't know, uh, maybe clearly, what the Bible teaches on this. We don't know whether it's something we should be doing or not doing, whether it's good for us or not good for us. What, wh why do this? And so, Lord, I pray that today we might have a, a, an answer to the question of why from the Word of God. And that, uh, Lord, you would guide us as we consider this for us. And, Lord, today we ask that we would remove all and any distractions that might keep us from hearing clearly from you today. As well as distractions that might keep me from communicating clearly what your word says. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> a mother shared this story with the leaders of Christ Christianity Today. She writes, One day my husband announced to the family that he was going to fast and pray. Jimmy, our five-year-old, had recently learned that fasting meant not eating. No, she shouted, you can't fast. You'll die. Her dad carefully explained that many men and women fasted in Bible times. Jenny paused for a moment, and then with a flash of insight and a note of warning, she proved her point. And they all died, she said. Well, one of the main objections to fasting is that it's not good for you. It won't be good for you, your health. It, it might even harm you, and certainly... If we don't know what we're doing and we, and we engage in an extended period of fasting, that is uh, abstaining from food, we certainly can have, uh, it can have ramifications for us if we don't know what we're doing or if, if we're not healthy and, and capable of going without food for that period of time. But the truth of the matter is that handled properly, fasting can actually have health benefits. Some people have actually been healed of, of chronic problems that they've had for over time, over years, uh, after fasting for a period of time. But certainly, it is not our primary reason for fasting as believers in Christ for the health reasons 
John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, says, Christian fasting, at its roots, is the hunger of a homesickness for God. The hunger of a homesickness for God. In other words, it is an intense desire within to know God, to seek God. Last week I issued a challenge, right, for our month, and that is to consider a 21-day fast from next Sunday, March 14th, to the day before Easter, April the 3rd. This morning I want to share with you some important truths about fasting from the Word of God. Before I do that, let me share a couple things. First of all, the word fast literally means to abstain from food. And that's how it's used throughout the Scripture. Okay? So when we talk, biblically speaking, about fasting, it is always referring to the abstaining from food. And there are three different forms of fasting, and I'll talk about that, that we see illustrated in the Bible. But it's also true that there are many other things besides food that can hinder our communion with God. And uh, so there are many areas in which we may need to practice self-denial or self-discipline in our life. Now, for our purposes this morning, in looking into the Scriptures, we'll be using the literal idea of fasting, meaning abstaining from food. But for our challenge, for that 21 days, I want to give it, leave it up to you to determine what that thing is you're going to set aside, that thing you're going to practice self-discipline or self-denial in if you choose to accept the challenge. Make sense? For the purposes of our time this morning, as we look at the Scriptures, we're going to define fasting as the abstaining from food. But again, for our challenge, I'm going to give it, uh, leave it under your hands to ask God, what is it, what will that look like for you to practice self-denial in your life. One of the books that's been very helpful to me in understanding this has been Arthur Wallace's book, the Cho God's Chosen Fast, written back in 1968. Uh, I read it many years ago when I was in seminary, and uh, over the past couple of weeks I reread it just to kind of, again, familiarize myself with some of the things he says in this book. I'm going to quote from him a couple different times throughout our time together this morning. In his preface, he says, fasting is important, more important perhaps than many of us have supposed, as I trust this book will reveal. For all that, it is not a major biblical doctrine, a foundation stone of faith, or a panacea for every spiritual ill. Nevertheless, when exercised with a pure heart and a right motive, Fasting may provide us with a key to unlock doors where other keys have failed. A window opening up new horizons in the unseen world. A spiritual weapon of God's providing mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And so, again, fasting, and as he writes, he's talking about abstaining from food. But fasting is not, uh, you know, some magic pill that we take that will now guarantee that God's going to hear our prayer and answer the way we want Him to. It is simply a means of seeking after God in a very determined and earnest way. So as we 
we uh, look at the scriptures this morning, we're going to answer the question, why fast? Why do we do this? Why would we do this? Why would we purposefully and willfully choose to go without food for a period of time? Or go without something else that we look to, maybe depend upon, or enjoy on a regular basis? Why would we choose to give that up for a period of time? Well, there's a couple of answers from the scriptures to the question, why fast? The first is that fasting is implied in scripture. Nowhere to my knowledge in the Bible are we commanded to fast. But it is implied. First of all, through the many, the, I'm sorry, the example of many, many people. And again, let me read from, uh, from Wallace's book because he summarizes this, and we're certainly going to look at many examples. Um, your fingers are going get, to get tired from flipping back and forth if, you, if you're going to do that. I'm going to read several verses, um, and you're certainly welcome to look them up while we're going through it, but you can write them down and look them up later. Um, but he says this, It may surprise the reader, as it certainly did the writer, to find that Scripture has so much to teach us by example and by precept about the value of this practice. He writes, among great Bible saints who fasted were Moses the lawgiver, David the king, Elijah the prophet, Daniel the seer. In the New Testament, we have the example of our Lord as well as of his apostles. It clearly had its place in the life of the early churches. Nor was this biblical practice confined just to men, for we find the names of Hannah in the Old Testament and Anna in the New Testament in the ranks of the intercessors who fasted as well as prayed. Some of the great saints of church history have practiced fasting and testified to its value. Among them, the great reformers such as Luther, Calvin, and Knox. The custom has not been confined to any theological school. Here we find Jonathan Edwards, the Calvinist, joining hands with John Wesley, the Arminian, and David Brainerd having fellowship with Charles Finney. These names represent great scholars and preachers, ministers and missionaries, revivalists and evangelists. We may find on the fasting list the names of Pastor Xu of China and Pastor Bloomhart of Germany, whom God used in their respective spheres a century ago for the deliverance of those bound by Satan. Time would fail us to mention the growing number whom God is raising up and using in the same ministry today through prayer and fasting. The doings of the great can scarcely be hidden. They are barely cold in their graves before their biographers are ferreting out their journals and private diaries. But only the opening of heaven's records on that day will reveal the numbers of anonymous saints who had no diaries and no biographers, but who've prayed with fasting to the God who sees in secret. They too shall surely shine among the galaxies of these illustrious saints, even as the stars forever and ever. We find many examples, again, through the scriptures, as well as through church history, who have practiced fasting and prayer. And God has seen fit to work mightily through many who have done so. Again, before we get into the scriptures, let me share with you three kinds of fasting we see illustrated in the Bible. Number one, 
would be what's called a normal fast. This would be giving up food but not water. Right? Giving up food but not water. Most of the examples in Scripture are of this sort. One particular would be Jesus as he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Remember, in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted by, by Satan. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the Scripture says, and then he became hungry. It doesn't say he became thirsty. Had he gone without food and water, he most certainly would have been thirsty. And uh, apart from God's supernatural work in a person, he cannot go without water for more than three days. Um, although there is an example in Scripture of one who did that. But, uh, but here we have Jesus and many others who, uh, who are um, engaged in what is called a normal fast, going without food but not water. Then secondly is what's called an absolute fast, and that is going without food and water. Typically, no more than three days. The examples we have would be Paul when he was uh, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And he had this encounter with Jesus, right, who appeared to him with this bright light that blinded Paul. And, for, and then he was led by those who were with him into the city of Damascus. And we're told in verse 9 that he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. In Ezra chapter 10, we see Ezra rose from before uh, the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And then in Esther chapter 4, after the edict went out, the decree it was signed or, or had the king's stamp upon it and that uh, decreed that on a particular day later in the year, all the Jews were to be wiped out. And Esther, who was the queen at that time, she sent a message to Mordecai, her relative. She said, go and assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's an absolute fast, without food or water. Third form is what's known as a partial fast, and that's probably what most of us will, will engage in uh, if we choose to, to, to take the challenge. A partial fast is going without a certain kind of food or a certain meal. A particular time. And we see this illustrated by Daniel in Jan Daniel chapter 1. Remember Daniel and his friends were young men who were taken captive from, from the, the southern kingdom of Judah, brought to Babylon. And uh, the way the Babylonians did this, they took the, the young, healthy uh, men and they would incorporate them into society and try to get them uh, in, uh, fed well and, and taught the, the ways of the Babylonians and, and then incorporate them into their society. This is a great way to build up your kingdom to take the healthy young men and to get them involved in what you're doing. But this is what we read, portion of uh, verses 8 through 16 of Daniel 1. It says, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. 
So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might def not defile himself. And he said this, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. And so the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Now, they didn't get fat, fat, right? It was just a way of saying they were healthy. Um, but here we find Daniel choosing to abstain from certain kinds of food. Uh, he had good reason because it would have um, uh, been against the laws of God to eat some of that food or whatever. But, but there is a choice on his part to, to abstain from certain kinds of food and certain things there. And that's a, what a partial fast is, is setting aside for a period of time certain things. Uh, for the sake of God, for the, way, for the sake of, of maybe even seeking after God for a particular reason. So those are the different forms we have. So we have the example of many, but then secondly, we have the words of Jesus. Would you open your Bible, please, with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, where Jesus references... Fasting. And he gives us some insight into something that we need to consider regarding his fasting for us today. Matthew 9, starting with verse 9, we'll read down to verse 15. We're going to focus on verse 15. But to get the context, we read that Jesus, as he was passing on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, or Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it happened that as he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Probably Matthew invited all of his tax gathering buddies to come and meet Jesus at his house for a meal. And then verse 11 says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? When he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I do not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is feasting right, with these people. And then it says in verse 14, the disciples of John, as John the Baptist, came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, well, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. There are some who believe that the only time that it was right to fast was between the time when Jesus was in the grave until the time he came forth from the grave. Three days. that The disciples mourned and fasted. But then once Jesus came back and now into the church age, we're living in a time of, of joy and celebration and we should not fast. Well, would you agree with me there is sorrow in this world? There is a time uh, before Jesus returns where where we deal with all kinds of things that, that may be a time that Jesus is referring to when he says, and then they will fast. Certainly we see 
The disciples fasted after Jesus went back to glory after his resurrection. We see the early church did. We see many within church history do or did, and, uh, and many still do today uh, with great benefit as God hears those prayers and acknowledges that self-denial or self-discipline. So Jesus says, then they will fast. Well, then we also see in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching about practicing a righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. And he gives three examples of that. All right, Matthew 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And then he says, And when therefore you give alms, example number one, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, and that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. So three basic emphasis. He says, when you give alms, don't be like the hypocrites who do it in public in order to be seen by others. No, instead go into and do it secretly so your Father who sees in secret will then repay you. Okay? Then he says, and when you pray, and second example, do not be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, when you shut your door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Again, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to do it in front of people in order to be seen by them. They get their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, when your Father who sees in secret will then repay you. Then he talks about prayer more and gives us the model prayer. Then you come down to verse 16, he gives a third example. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, they are reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that when, uh, so you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Again, same thing. Don't do it like the hypocrites. Do it in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will repay you. We would not say that giving, financial giving to God's work, is not for today. We would not say that prayer is not for today. But we oftentimes say fasting is not for today. Jesus gave all three examples to us in that context. It is my personal feeling that God and that Jesus intended for his people to continue to practice these things. Again, not as a, uh, a command to have to do it regularly, but as a way of seeking God. So we see it is implied in Scripture, the example of many, the words of Jesus. Uh, D. James Kennedy came to the same conclusion. Uh, in this book, Fasting Can Change Your Life, gives many, many, uh, art, it's many interviews with different uh, Christians who have practiced fasting and prayer and uh, what they learned and, and what, what they experienced. D. James Kennedy says, they asked, do you practice fasting? He said, early in my ministry, I assumed that fasting was an Old Testament practice. It was not applicable to the New Testament. So I didn't fast. Later, however, I read the comment of Paul. 
in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. He said, Paul's fasting caught my attention and caused me to investigate the matter from the New Testament perspective. I was led to believe then that fasting was intended for Christians in the New Testament times as well. I then began the practice of fasting. And he continued to do that periodically throughout his life. Um, we also see that John Piper came to the same conclusion. He writes in his book, A Hunger for God. My own serious consideration of fasting as a spiritual discipline began as a result of visiting Dr. Jun Gong Kim in Seoul, Korea. Is it true, I asked him, that you spent 40 days in fasting prior to the evangelism crusade in 1980? Yes, he responded, it is true. And here's what, what the story is. Dr. Kim was chairman of the crusade expected, uh, was chairman of the crusade expected to bring a million people uh, to Seoul, Korea. But six months before the meeting, the police informed him they were revoking their permission for the crusade. Korea at that time was in political turmoil and Seoul was under martial law. The officers decided they could not take the risk of having so many people together in one place. So Dr. Kim and some of his associates went to a prayer mountain and there spent 40 days before God praying and fasting for the crusade. And they returned and made their way to the police station. Oh, said the officer when he saw Dr. Kim. We changed our mind. You can have your crusade. Again, is, again, this is no magic formula. This is simply a means of earnestly seeking God. And for some reason that I can't explain, throughout Scripture and throughout church history, we see example after example after example of God taking notice of his people when they take this seriously. And they fast and pray. And so the second answer to our question, why fast, is fasting is a means of earnestly seeking God. Again, understand, it's not a command given in Scripture, but I believe it's implied in Scripture. It is not a magic formula to get God to do what we want him to do. It's a way of earnestly seeking after God, of demonstrating that we are earnest to, to know God, to know God's will in a particular situation, to see God do something in somebody's life that needs to happen, deliver them from a, an addictive thing in their life, to deliver them from Satan's hold on their life to see some kind of answer to a dilemma that we face, to see God work in our country that is desperately in need of a revival, to see God move in ways that bring glory and honor to his name. It's a means of earnestly seeking God. Would you turn now to Isaiah 58? Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied in, in a ministry that was a long period of time. Part of that time uh, was during the time when the Assyrians came and took the 
northern kingdom of Israel captive. And as he, as he prophesied to the southern kingdom, he warned them if they do not repent, if they do not turn from their wickedness, then God is going to bring the Babylonians to come and take them captive. Now the Babylonians weren't even in great power at that time. Assyrians were still in charge. Assyrians were the, were the main power of, of the world. But Isaiah, through, again, the, the direction of God, would, would warn them, and then he would, he would prophesy concerning the, the, the coming of Messiah. But he continually throughout would give warnings and would give um, woes to the people, not only to the nation of uh, uh, the southern kingdom, but also to the northern kingdom, to other other nations around. And we come to chapter 58, and we see that God is instructing Isaiah to speak to the people about their empty forms of, and rituals. They thought that because they were the people of God, that, that they just needed to go through the motions of these, these empty rituals, and that God would just somehow continue to bless them and, and work in their lives. And fasting was one of those rituals. To my understanding, there was only one day of the year during the Old Testament times where fasting was, was expected of the people, and that was on the Day of Atonement. It's not to say there weren't other times, and, there were, and again, we'll see the scriptures where fasts were called upon, to the, the nation was called to fast at different times for different reasons, but there was one day every year where the people fasted, the Day of Atonement. And it seems as if that's the context of what what uh, is going on here. And they were, again, just going through the motions. It was an outward thing. And they thought that that was, that it would oblige God to, to do what they wanted. So I'm going to read all, four, all 14 verses of chapter 58. I want you to, to hear what, what is being said and what's going on and how God shows them what they were doing was wrong, but then what he expects in a fast, and, um, and then how God will respond to that. Isaiah 58, cry loudly, God says to Isaiah, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways. As a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask me for just decisions, they delight in the nearness of God. And they say, why have we fasted and thou dost not seek? Why have we humbled ourselves and thou dost not notice? And kind of, this is God's response. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose? And again, what is the fast? It was a, an outward ritual and not heartfelt desire to, to seek after God. He says, is, is this, verse 5, is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed or for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? I, I take it God is saying of oh, these outward demonstrations, again, without an inward reality. He says, will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Verse 6, is this not the fast which I choose? 
to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into the house, and when you see the naked, to cover him, and to hide yourself from your own flesh, to not hide yourself from your own flesh? And then your light will break out like the dawn. And your recovery will speedily spring forth. And your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones, and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among them will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call a Sabbath a delight, a holy day of the Lord honorable and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father from the mouth of the Lord before the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I believe God is saying when we take seriously Again, whether it's fasting, worship, the reading of Scripture, prayer, any form of uh, we, we uh, engage in and the worship and, and, and to get to know God, to seek His face, when we do that as an outward expression only, as a, as a ritual, it is nothing and it will leave us flat and wanting more. But when we engage in these things from a whole heart, a heart that seeks after God, a heart that wants what God wants, not what we want, a heart that wants God's pleasure, not our own, a heart that says, I want to see God work among people and see people who are hungry, fed, people who are oppressed, uh, brought out of that oppression, people who are, who are bound by the enemy, delivered from it, people who are in all kinds of issues to be see God work in their lives. If that's our heart's desire, we see what God will do. You look at this imagery, we could say, man, does, does the nation, the United States of America, need this desperately? Yes. Does the church need this desperately? Yes. Do you and I need this desperately in our own lives? Yes. We need to know God. We need God to be so at work in us that every thought we think is in accord with the Word of God. Every desire that we have is in accord with the Word of God. Every pleasure we seek is the things God has for us, not the things we have for ourselves. We need what God said to the nation of Israel, to the, the kingdom of Judah. In Joel chapter 2, Verses 12 and 13, the Lord says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. 
Return to the loving kindness. I'm sorry, now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting in evil. Verse 14 says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Well, what would happen if the people of God returned to God with a whole heart? What might God do? Again, Arthur Wallace writes, When a man is willing to set aside the legitimate appetites of the body to concentrate on the work of prayer, he is demonstrating that he means business, that he is seeking with all of his heart and his will, and he will not let God go unless God moves. It is a seeking earnestly after God with a whole heart. There are six actions that, that come or are demonstrated by fasting. The first is a way to demonstrate humility. Fasting is a way to demonstrate humility. Again, we see that in this passage in Isaiah 58. God is calling them to, to truly humble themselves, not to just go through the acts. Humble yourself. Let, let, me just, let me just throw it out to you. Think about this. Just for today. When you came here today. Did you come here with an anticipation that, that you were going to get to join in with God's people to lift our voices in praise to God and to hear what God has to say from His Word? Or did you come here today because that's just what we do on Sunday morning. We got church. And hey, God may not be too happy with me if I don't do it. Uh, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm not watching online this morning, is, is, that, is that only because if I don't, then God's going to somehow find a way to make life miserable for me? Maybe just a little bit. Is that how we do God? Is that the reason why we do what we do? We say, man, I can't wait to get online. I can't wait to come and be part of what God is doing to me here in the presence of God. Do I have a humility that wants to seek God? Psalm 35, verse 13, David says, I humbled my soul with fasting. I humbled my soul with fasting. In Ezra, chapter 8, 21 to 23, the context is King Artaxerxes of Persia is sending the Jews back. Whoever wants to go back can go back to their, their land, back to Jerusalem, back to the, the land that God had given them. Ezra 8, 21 23, you read this. Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. 
is how, this is just how, how brutally honest the scriptures are. He says, For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against those who forsake him. He's like, I wanted to ask the king to send some people with us to, to keep us safe, but I was embarrassed because we had told the king how much we trusted God and how God was so good to us. And I, I didn't want to dishonor the reputation of God. And so it says, so we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter. And he listened to our entreaty. They humbled themselves before God. Secondly, a way to demonstrate sorrow. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, I'm sorry, 31, the last chapter, the last verse of, of, of 1 Samuel, King Saul has been killed in battle. His son Jonathan also. And the, the Philistines took and actually hung their bodies on a wall as a trophy. Some valiant, brave men from the, the, the region of Jabesh Gilead went and got the bodies off the wall and brought them to, to, to bury them properly. This was the king and his son. And then it says in verse 13, they took their bones, buried them under the tamarisk tree at, at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. They fasted in sorrow for the, for the nation, their king, has been killed in battle. The next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12, when David found out about it, David and his men also, verse 12, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord in the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Sorrow. And Esther Chapter 4, again, when the edict went out to all the regions that, that on a particular day later in the year all the Jews were killed, we're told in Esther 4.3, in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. It was a way of demonstrating sorrow, mourning, grief. There's also thirdly a way to demonstrate repentance. In Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel was reading the scriptures one day. He's in captivity. And he, he reads about the 70 years. He reads about the, the prophecy. Right? How 70 years God said they would be in captivity. Well, they'd been there a long time. And so he decides to go ahead and pray to God about what now. Uh, and, he, and he spends a good bit of his prayer confessing the sins of the people. But it says in verse 3, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. In Jonah chapter 3, and this is an interesting uh, thing that happened after Jonah ran from God and God put him in the belly of the fish and he spit him up on the sea and uh, on the land and now he went and he proclaimed reluctantly to the people of Nineveh God's judgment upon them and then we're told that the people heard and believed what he said they believed this reluctant prophet 
but didn't even want to tell them. They believed in God. And verse 5 says, And then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And here's what they thought. They said, the king called everyone, even the animals, not to eat. He said, perhaps God will relent of this calamity, relent of his judgment. And he did. God changed his mind about bringing judgment on the wicked people of Nineveh because they fasted and prayed, humbled themselves, and repented. And you say, well, okay, theologically, how does that work? Right? How, God doesn't change his mind. Well, the scripture uses that language. Obviously, God in his sovereignty knew what he was going to do. But there's something given to us in these examples that says that we can seek God for answers to things that are going on and and what looks like is going on, and you, could, you can say just as I can say, we look around and we say, man, the judgment of God is upon this nation. And it's not getting better. It's only getting worse. Day after day, every, de every decision that's made from, the, from the, the top down, man, it seems like it's just more stupidity that just is, has ramifications for people that are negative, and it just seems like one thing after another, the judgment of God seems to be on us. Can that change? Certainly. We don't know the mind of God for this nation. Maybe God is calling his people to pray and fast for this nation. There's been so much talk, and if I can deviate for a moment, so much talk over the internet, and everybody talking about, we're, you know, it, it, we're living in the last days, man. Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. And that very well may be. But when you look back in church history, there have been some really dark, spiritually dark times where it certainly seemed, and you go back even to the New Testament, where it seemed like there's no way that God's not coming back immediately. And he hasn't come back yet. Don't hold your breath that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but live as if he is, right? Live our lives as if... <laughs> Jesus could, could return tomorrow, and certainly you don't want to find him, want him to find you doing something you shouldn't be doing. Keep seeking him, but there are more people that need to know Christ. There are people all over this world who have not yet heard. And if we have the heart of God, we want to see that happen. So let's pray to that end, that God would withhold his return until everyone gets the opportunity. So we've accomplished the work of God here on earth. And again, you go back to Joel when he says, Now, yet, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Who knows that he will not relent from his calamity? So it's a way to demonstrate humility, a way to demonstrate sorrow, a way to demonstrate repentance. And again, we see all that kind of illustrated in Isaiah 58. Three more things that are demonstrated through fasting. One, or number four, is a way to demonstrate worship. Luke chapter 2, verse 37. We see Anna in the temple. This is uh, when after Jesus was born, and, and they, they, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple to be dedicated. 
and uh, Simeon is there, right? He, he sees him and he lifts him up and he says, now I can let your servant depart in peace. And he proclaims that he's a light to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people, Israel. And then we come to chapter 37. We learn about this elderly woman named Anna who has spent many, many, many years serving the Lord in the temple. It says in, she was a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. I find, it's amazing when you start looking for this, that this fasting is everywhere in the Scripture. And we seem to miss it. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. Barnabas and Saul were part of the church in Antioch. Before they were, this was before they were called to go. And it says in, in verse 2 and 3, while they, that is the church, were ministering to the Lord and, and fasting. Okay, this apparently was something they did as a, just a way to worship God. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. <laughs> this is just part of worship for people. To fast and pray. God is certainly worthy of a sacrifice simply to honor Him, to worship Him. Even if He never answers a prayer that we pray, He's certainly worthy of our sacrifice. Fifthly, it's a way to demonstrate desperation. And again, often we see when people are being called to pray specifically and at particular times, it was a way to demonstrate a desperation of some kind. They need God. And some of the examples I've already read were, were that. A few others we see. And I, it's important to hear this one because it's important for us to see that God doesn't always answer the way we want. In 2 Samuel 12, we talked about some of this uh, Wednesday night as we were going through this passage. After David had committed a sin with Bathsheba, and then he had her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield, and then, um, and then the child is born, right? This child that came as a result of, of adultery with David and Bathsheba. And then the child was sick. The child was going to die. We're told that David inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground and then later in the passage it says, And it happened on the seventh day that the child died. So that David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he came into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. So he'd gone seven days without eating, fasting, praying, asking God to change his mind about judgment that would result in the ch this child dying. But the child died. God didn't answer the prayer of David. And the servant said, well, when the child, what is this thing you've done? When this, this child was alive, you fasted and wept, and when the child died, you rose and ate. Remember what happened before when someone died? They fasted after they died, but David did the opposite. He fasted and prayed first, and then he got out and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? 
I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I love David's perspective on this. He doesn't get all bummed out and say, oh, well, forget God. He didn't answer my prayer. I mean, I dedicated myself to this. I fasted for seven days and prayed, and I, I didn't talk to anybody. I laid there for seven days, and, and I wanted this so bad, and yet God didn't give it to me. No, he said, I submitted this to God in his will. In his sovereignty, he chose to take the child. Accept the will of God. But before that will was revealed, I sought God earnestly. I accepted God's hand in this. What a great perspective. That's not to minimize the incredible tragedy this was to lose a child. Please hear me. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that and saying we should just get over it so quickly. I'm saying we have an example in Scripture that helps us realize this is not a magic pill, right? That, that God always answers the way we want. But it is a way of earnestly seeking God in desperation. Second Chronicles 20, 3 and 4. Again, the, the people of Judah were under an invasion of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. And King Jehoshaphat, it says, was afraid. You ever been afraid? I have. You don't know what to do. You don't know which way to go. You, you, the enemy is, is coming down upon you. And it doesn't seem like there's any hope. The circumstance is so grim that there doesn't seem to be any relief, any, any evidence that anything positive is going to come about. He was scared. And he turns his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And so Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. And they even came from all the cities to Judah to seek the Lord. Desperately needed God to show up and do something. And so they sought him with fasting. He proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. In, uh, in Persia, and he gets word that, that the, the walls in Jerusalem are, are broken down and the people are being harassed and, and oppressed by the neighboring peoples, and his heart was desperate for God to do something. And so in Nehemiah 1.4, it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When you, if you know that prayer, he prayed, again, uh, confessing the sins of the people. But ultimately, what it came down to, what he was requesting of God, was that God would give him favor in the eyes of the king and give him permission to return to the Jerusalem so that he could lead the charge in building the walls. And he did so in record time. It all started because he sought God earnestly, including fasting. Again, the Esther situation where she was desperate. She had to go in and see the king. She wasn't summoned by the king. She could lose her life. This was a desperate situation for the people of God. She fasted and called the people to fast three days and nights, and then she was going to go, and she went. And what happened? The king extended the scepter, welcomed her in, and God did incredible work to preserve his people. We also see Matthew 17, and there's some speculation as to whether or not this was part of the original scripture, but, but it's there. And so, you know, when Jesus came off the mountain, transfiguration, and his other disciples, they couldn't cast out the, the demon from this young boy. 
And he said, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus said, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Desperation. To see God work in ways that humanly seems impossible. And lastly, as a way to demonstrate consecration. Again, Acts 13. When, they were, when God, the Holy Spirit, told them, set apart Saul and Barnabas and Saul for the work I have for them, what did they do? Well, what do we do? Well, we have a great feast. Right? It's a big celebration, uh, a meal, all these things. I have to send people out. What did they do? Oh, man, they sought the Lord with fasting and prayer because they knew <laughs> this is no easy task. This is, we need to, to be consecrated to God to send them out and consecrate them. And in Acts 14, Barnabas and, and then Paul, who became Paul afterwards, or was known as Paul, when they would um, appoint elders, chapter 14, verse 23 says, and when they had appointed elders from them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, please understand there's nothing wrong with celebrating and having food, right? But what we see in Scripture is that when it was, when it was an earnest consecration, they sought earnestly the face of God through prayer and fasting. So what is it that we need? Well, certainly we need our hearts humble. Certainly there's reason for us to grieve and feel sorrow of things going on in our own lives and the lives of those around us and in our country and our world. There's need for repentance of sin in our hearts and the lives of those around us. Certainly we need to be seeking God in worship we need to desperately seek after God for His will to be known, to be done, to be accomplished, and to consecrate ourselves and others to what God is doing. So my question for you is, will you consider some kind of fast as a way of earnestly seeking God? You ask God, what is it He would have you to do? And then the second question is, what are you going to seek Him for? What is it that needs to happen in your life, maybe in the lives of others? Maybe you need direction, guidance. Maybe God puts it on your heart to pray for our nation in that time. Maybe it's somebody you are close to who needs a, a touch from God in some way or another. You need circumstances radically changed. You need hearts of people to open to God. Maybe it's that you need to have a greater heart for the lost. What is it you're going to seek God for in this time of fasting? Because it's not just fasting, though fasting in itself has benefits, but, but to take the time that you would normally spend doing that thing or whatever, seek God. Again, remember, not a magic formula to get God to do what we want. It is a way to earnestly seek after God. Let me conclude by reading the proclamation of President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 when he called this nation 
to a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Because what he says here is every bit relevant for our nation and for the church today. He says, it is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins, transgressions, in a humble sorrow, yet with a short hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sin. To the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Oh, to have a president who would call the people to something like that today. Oh, to have the church take seriously that kind of message. We need to seek the face of God desperately and earnestly. And this is a way for us to do that. Let's pray. Father, I trust that today we've gotten a better glimpse of what the Scripture has to say to us about fasting and prayer. My hope is that we have become convinced that though it's not a command, it is certainly implied. It is something that we can do today and certainly something that you take notice of as we seek you with all of our heart setting aside certain things, whether it be food or anything else that is in our life, that, that at times can be a distraction and can, can fill our time so full in a day that we, we find we don't have time to seek God. Oh God, you know there are so many distractions in our world today. So many things that vie for our time and attention that that could be set aside even for a time. And who knows, Lord, we might find that, that that thing is no good for us in the long run and we give it up for good. We'll leave that to you, Lord. Whatever it is, make it clear. And God, may we set ourselves apart for this very thing. We might earnestly seek the face of God. God, that you might be pleased to hear our prayers in this, in this season. That you might be pleased to do a mighty, mighty work. Restoring, renewing, reviving. Delivering. Whatever it is you choose to do, Lord, may we seek your face. May you seek your will to be done. And Lord, before we even engage in this, let us give thanks to you that you hear our prayers for the things that you will do through those who earnestly, desperately 
wholeheartedly seek your face. For we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we conclude uh, our service,